The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me, or my children, or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness that I have shown you. And Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that that Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me and I only heard about it today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set seven ewe lambs from the flock and Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart by themselves? He replied, accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So the place was called Beersheba because the two men made an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. As we've read in recent weeks, uh, Abraham came to this, this land in fear. So Abraham had said to himself, there is no fear of God in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. And then, of course, as we read in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 20, verse 3, God turned up and and he appeared to Abimelech in a dream uh, one night and said to him, you're as good as dead because of the woman you've taken. Since then, as noted last Sunday, we've had uh, several years have passed. We had the birth of Isaac. And then as Andy spoke, by the time Isaac was weaned, um, it was probably somewhere between five and ten years after Abraham had first met Abimelech. For five or ten years, Abimelech has no doubt been watching Abraham. And now here in Genesis chapter 21, verse 22, at that time Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. You know, it's one thing to fear God because he appears to you in a dream. It's another thing to observe him at work in his people. This is not Abimelech's earlier declaration, God has appeared to me and I'm terrified, why have you done this to me? Now Abimelech says, I've been watching you all these years, since we first met, and I see that God is with you in everything you do. You know, it's one thing to know that God is to be feared. It's quite another to realise that God acts on behalf of his people. The verse we keep coming back to, Romans 8.28, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. This is not clichéd rhetoric, it's not a wishful thinking from Paul in the first century. It's something that Abimelech witnessed as he observed Abraham's life. Keep in mind, Abimelech is well aware of Abraham's ability to deceive and to engage Sarah in that deceit. That's been part of the journey. And I wonder if Abimelech is 
observe this dissension between, um, between Sarah and Hagar as they've had that falling out in their relationship after the birth of Ishmael. And now with the birth of Isaac, this, that, that generational tension passes on as we find that, uh, as Andy read last week, that at the, at, uh, the celebration of, of the weaning of uh, Isaac, um, Ishmael mocks. So I wonder whether Abimelech's been watching that. And yet he still says, I see that God is with you in everything you do. You and I are far from perfect. I'll speak for myself. I'm far from perfect. And yet in all things, God is able to work for my good because I love him and because I'm called according to his purposes. I don't always feel like it's working for my good. There are plenty of days where I get up out of bed in the morning and go, God, this isn't working out for my good. But I know when I stop and when I look back over my life, in all things, God works for my good. Last Sunday when she introduced communion, Tertia made the comment that she didn't like having to pray the sinner's prayer. And then she connected the sinner's prayer with Romans 10, uh, 9 and 10, which says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. One example of the uh, sinner's prayer is, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins rose from the dead, I turn, my, turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Saviour. In your name, Amen. That version was the one used by Billy Graham. And so there are probably millions around the world who have prayed that prayer. But sadly, for so many of them, that's kind of where it stopped. Here's the thing, there's nothing wrong with that prayer. The problem is when the message that goes with it is often, pray this and you will be saved. But just because I pray, just because I say the right words, doesn't mean I'll be saved. There, there are no right words. Nobody I can find in Scripture ever prayed that prayer. Jesus never asked anyone to pray that prayer. There is no such prayer. There is no set of words that lead to salvation. If you just pray the words, nothing changes. However, if you mean those words when you pray them, everything changes. Because if you actually believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, everything changes. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. With your heart you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. There are no right words, but there is a right attitude of heart. 
Words change nothing. But a heart attitude changes everything. God calls and we either believe him, in which case we follow him and we obey him, and everything changes, or we reject him and we keep doing our own thing and nothing changes. Abraham's life thus far is a lesson in learning to listen to God and learning to respond in obedience. Abraham doesn't, as we've seen, get everything right. In fact, he makes some major mistakes in the journey. He gets a lot wrong, but his heart attitude to God is right. I like this phrase that came to my mind this morning. It said, he doesn't always listen for God, but he does always listen to God. And I thought, how often that explains what's going wrong in my life. I listen to God, and I hear what he says, and I seek to act in obedience. But I don't always listen for God. Sometimes I just go ahead in my own strength, in my own way. And that's when I get into trouble. He doesn't always listen for God, but he does always listen to God. Back in Genesis 15, 6, on one occasion, uh, when God had repeated this, this, uh, this promise to Abraham, this continued the revelation, we're told in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. This was belief that, that set Abraham's life on a new track. It doesn't say that Abraham had full confidence and absolute trust in God. As the story shows, Abraham still struggled to believe that God would protect and provide. That's why he had Sarah lie. But he did set the orientation of his life after God. The word that Bill used before was repent. I'm going this way, I'm going my way. And God says repent. I turn around and I go his way. If I don't turn around, I may say all the right words, but I'm still going my way. In Romans 12, Paul says, don't be, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In a moment when we believe in God, in that moment when we set the orientation of our life towards him, when we give him our heart and our life, when we say, I want to stop living for me, God, I want to start living for you, it's more than words. Whatever the words we choose, when we actually choose to set the orientation of our heart towards him, everything changes. Before that moment, we are told we are dead in sin. But in that moment, we are made alive in Christ when we repent from doing our own thing and choose to go his way. Second Corinthians, Paul puts it this way, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. From the moment Abraham believed in God, it was credited to him as righteousness. He entered into right relationship with God. And the trajectory of his entire life changed. And from that moment, God worked in him and through him, sometimes in spite of Abraham's failings, and many times using 
God, Abraham's failings. See, that's one thing. It's one thing for God to work in my life in spite of my failings. But the true power of God is he can work through my life through my failings. Because in all things God works. And others will see it. And so we're told that Abimelech says to Abraham, I've seen it. God is with you in everything you do. And so follows the story of this making of a treaty between Abraham, who has become, who will become the father of a great nation, primarily but not exclusively the nation of Israel, and Abimelech, who is a Philistine king. A few hundred years ago, a few hundred years from the story on, their descendants will be bitter enemies. But at this point in time, they make a treaty and plan to live in peace and promise to live in peace with one another. And Abraham is finding a safe place to settle. And Abimelech is no doubt of the understanding that having someone amongst his people who is living under the blessing of God and the favour of God, that can only be a good thing for his people. Well, today many paint Christians, when we talk about the problems in the world, there are many people who would paint Christians as part of the problem. We're judgmental, would be one accusation. But we must not allow a very vocal voice of a minority to drive us into hiding or retreat. We hear so many voices in our society that tell us how our Christian beliefs are so wrong and narrow. And we must not allow a vocal voice of a minority to drive us into hiding or retreat. God has called us and he sends us and he is for us. In Hebrews 12, having it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He's been there before. Having reflected on the lives of so many great men and women of faith, very human, each one of them, but loved by God and called by him, the writer to the Hebrews declares, consider him who endured such opposition. You know, when we read through the book of Luke, we read the story of Jesus' life. We kind of get the feeling that Jesus was really unpopular. And that unpopularity grew to the point that he was crucified. But don't, in the midst of that, miss the rest of the story. You see, while the religious leaders and the political leaders were increasingly opposed, the crowds, the tax collectors, the sinners, they flocked to hear him. Not all believed, but so many listened, and many came to believe. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have healed a man and, and they've been brought before the Jewish ruling council. And we're told that when the ruling council saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordin unschooled, ordinary men who had been with Jesus, 
But since they could see the man in front of them who had been healed standing there, there was nothing that they could say. After further threats against Peter and John, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all of the people were praising God for what had happened. When God moves in power through his people, there will be opposition, but don't let that in your head, in our heads, in our thinking, be the dominant voice. As we come into this election season, we will hear many strong, or at least some very loud voices. Among them will be some strong Christian voices, and if those voices are heard because God is instructing them to speak, I have no objection. However, our communities will not be transformed by loud voices, political parties or otherwise. Our communities will not be transformed by loud voices, but by strong faith. Not by people who have a lot to say, but by people who choose to live in obedience to God. So that like Abimelech, they will say, I have seen that God is with you in everything you do. You know, in time, the gospel, which supposedly was facing such opposition, began to change the Roman Empire. And then it went on to change the world, and Jesus said that the day will come that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Where this gospel is preached, where it is spoken out, where it is lived out, many will come to faith in our generation and in our community. And so we're told that Abraham lived in that land for a long time. We're told that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Bathsheba and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. I did a bit of research and apparently the, the best, coolest shade to be found was under a tamarisk tree. So if you're dwelling in a place that tends to be pretty hot, pretty arid, it's the kind of tree that you want to plant, if you think you're going to be around long enough to sit under it, that's an act of faith. Apparently its leaves and bark have got healing properties. But it's the kind of tree that lives in arid places. It lives in places where the climate is harsh and the sand is salty. And so Abraham's planting of this tamarisk tree was a declaration of hope and faith that God would provide and God would protect. So it was trusting in this treaty with Abimelech, but more so it was trusting in God's covenant with him. And as part of that, as he calls on the name of the Lord, he calls him the eternal God. And so we continue the story. And as we continue the story, God reveals more and more of himself and who he is. And so I decided as I got to this point in my preparation to look back over the names that God has revealed so far. And I discovered there is a translation called the Names of God Translation. So that was fascinating to read. 
And so if we go back in the story so far, in Genesis 1, where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the word is Elohim. Elohim. God is creator. The second verse, it's, the earth was formless and empty and the darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so we have Ruach Elohim, the spirit of God. And in the beginning of the next chapter, in chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, he reveals himself as Yahweh or Jehovah Elohim, the self-existent one. And then further forward in Genesis 14, when we had Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought bread and wine out to Abraham. He reveals himself. He, uh, he is a priest after, of the Most High God, which is El Elyon, the Most High God. And then in Genesis 15, verse 2, Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? And so he is God over all. He is Adonai. And then in Genesis 16, Hagar, you remember, gave him this name. You are the God who sees me. El Roy. The strong one who sees. And then in chapter 17, God reveals himself. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. And in Genesis 21, verse 33, Abraham plants a tamarisk tree and he calls him the eternal God, El Olam. God continues to reveal himself. We're going to stand together again and sing one of those songs that is so timeless. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder we need to be a people who catch a vision of God in all his names, in all his power, in all his glory. Because he calls us to follow him. He calls us to come to him. And he promises to be with us. And throughout scripture, repeatedly, we see that people note the blessing of God is with those who follow him. Because in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If we're going to go further, Ashley, we need to have a vision of who God is. We need to have confidence in who God is. And to take God at his word and to understand the power of his word, which he says is sharper than a two-edged sword. We can't cower away and go, the world is against us. There are a few very vocal voices that are against the people of God. But most of the world is desperately hungry for the bread of life and the water of life. And God has sent us to feed this world, this community. Let's stand together and worship him. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatitu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.